20 years ago, a book got published called The Heart of the Artist. I read it um, shortly after it came out and was rather blown away by it. It was just all the things I wish I had been able to say, but I hadn't up until that point in ministry, which 20 years ago, so I had been doing this for a long time already because I'm that old. Um, I, I, I love that. And, and worship, uh, the, the Heart of the Artist was just this incredible um, guidebook for me as a worship pastor. And uh, soon after the, I read the book, a, a guy I was serving on staff with at the church in, in Frankfort, Kentucky said, um, you know, Rory does Heart of the Artist Weekends, and, and he'll come to your church and, and do a retreat based on the content from that book. And I was like, that would be amazing. Um, we couldn't afford it because it's fantastic. And, and so I, I've waited for 15 years for you, Rory. I've waited for 15 years. And, and because of, of your generosity and also partnering with three other churches, we were able to get Rory here from Chicago, cover his expenses, all that sort of thing, and just make it possible for him to spend. He was here Friday night from 7 to 9 teaching our worship ministry. He was here yesterday from 9 until about 3.30 teaching our worship ministry. And here's, he's here today to teach the rest of us. And I can't wait for you to hear much as I couldn't wait for him to hear you, I can't wait for you to hear my friend Rory Nolan. So would you give him a wood round of welcome, please? I can't say that very well, but thank you. Thanks, Rod. <clears throat> had a wonderful time um, with the worship ministry Friday and Saturday, and felt it was a great privilege to lead that retreat for them. And I was very impressed with uh, their passion for worship and their desire to grow as worshipers and worship leaders. And um, I think uh, you are led well I mean, as far as the, the gift that God has given you in them. So praise God and praise God for you as well. And it's good to be with you this morning. I have been involved in church music for most of my life. And as you can imagine, I've had my fair share of calls from congregation members complaining about the music. Uh, it's too loud. It's too soft. It's too fast. It's too slow. It's too loud. It's too contemporary. It's too traditional. Still too loud. <laughs> so many years ago, when a call came through to me from a quote time long term attender or long time attender, uh, I must admit that I braced myself for another round of complaining. However, it turned out to be a call that I have never forgotten, and the man on the other end of the line asked me to recommend a voice teacher. And for some reason, I just assumed that he was asking on behalf of one of, one of his children, and so I said, how old is the child? And he said, no, no, it's not for my kid, it's for me. Well, suspecting that I had another uh, aspiring American Idol on my hands, I probed deeper and I said, so do you want to audition for the choir or the worship team? No, no, he replied, I just want to do a better job of worshiping on Sunday morning. Now, let me get this straight, I began. You want to pay for voice lessons just so you can sit out in the congregation and sing better on Sunday? Uh, something like that, he chuckled. I've always used my inability to sing as an excuse not to worship. I don't really want to be a singer. I just want to become a better worshiper. Boy, I think you can see why that is a phone call, a conversation that I've never forgotten. I'm not suggesting that you all run out and take voice lessons, uh, but I think there's something that we can learn from a man who's willing to invest time and money into improving his ability to worship. 
I used to think that the responsibility for effective worship rested solely on the worship leader and the pastor. I mean, certainly not on me. Uh, I thought I was doing my job by simply showing up. However, uh, John 4.23 tells us that God is looking for people who want to do more than just show up when it comes time to worship. Jesus said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And get this, for the Father is seeking people like that to worship him. So God is looking for true worshipers, people who really mean business when it comes to worship. He's looking for people who, like my friend on the phone, want to become better worshipers. And hopefully that's you this morning. You know, maybe you sense that the Lord is calling you to something deeper, uh, more real, more intimate in your own worship. And maybe he's calling you to take the next step in becoming a serious worshiper, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, there are four important principles that I think we need to lay out, uh, four things that you need to know in order to grow in worship. And then we'll talk about a couple things to, uh, to apply. Um, first of all, Worship is God's ultimate priority. And this is really essential, friends, because we tend to make worship all about us. But God is passionate about his glory. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God is not willing to share his glory with another because it properly belongs to him as the one true living God. So since worship is God's ultimate priority, worship needs to have a prominent place in our lives. King David wrote, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. So David's devotion to worship just oozes out of that verse, doesn't it? And more than anything, he wants to bask in the beauty of God's presence. He was enamored with God's glory. And the one thing that he longs for is intimacy with God and a chance to worship his heavenly father. So how about you? Is worship a priority in your life? Or is it only for those who are musically inclined? I know one of the things we constantly have to work again in, our, in, in a biblical concept of worship is that uh, to work against the, the um, uh, misperception that worship is equated with music, that somehow, you know, you got to have music to do worship, you know, or that worship is just for those musically inclined people. No, it's, in fact, as we're going to see more and more, you know, we're all commanded to worship. You know, it's, it's not optional. We're all commanded to worship. So secondly, um, the, the first thing is worship is God's ultimate priority. Second is worship can be practiced individually as well as corporately. Uh, according to Psalm 145.2, David worshiped God daily, not just on Sunday. He says, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So for David, worship was not confined to this weekly Sabbath ritual that was conducted exclusively at the local synagogue. Uh, worship was a well-practiced personal habit for him. Now, I want to be very clear about what I mean when I talk about worship as a private spiritual discipline, you know, something we do on our own as well as together. Because uh, I'm talking about expressing reverence, love, and gratitude regularly to God. See, it's not enough to believe or, nice, or feel nice things about God. We've got to tell him. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? 
because Peter needed to say it. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Because they needed to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus wondered why those nine lepers didn't come back to thank him because they needed to. So somehow we need to say it. It's important to God that we express it, that we say it. And I happen to think that our lives would be so much richer, our souls more alive, and our hearts more on fire if we were to say it, express our reverence, love, and gratitude to God regularly. I mean, every day if possible. Now, uh, in my book, Worship on Earth as it is in Heaven, I offer some practical ideas on how to actually practice worship during the week. And I don't have time to list all of those now, but I, I just want to mention one simple idea that you can use right now, unless you already do, and if you don't already. Uh, but early in my spiritual journey, I learned an acronym that made worship a vital part of my daily devotions. And the acronym spelled ACTS, the word ACTS. Uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication all vital components of an effective prayer life. And the first part of that sequence, adoration, really taught me more than anything else how to worship God privately. And especially at the beginning, I wasn't very good at it, but uh, I said, you know, I need to uh, adore, I need to you know, express adoration to God. So I used to just praise God for whatever attribute of his came to mind or whatever deed, you know, that I could, you know, find in scripture that he has done. But using the acronym ACTS enabled worship to become part of my daily routine, and it didn't take a whole lot of time either. So if you're looking for a good place to start in practicing private worship, you know, things to do during the week, well, try this simple acronym, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Okay, um, first thing is worship is God's ultimate priority. Second point was worship can be practiced individually as well as corporately. Thirdly, uh, obedience is the highest form of worship. And this is where we're taking our discussion of worship uh, below the surface here. It's not just singing, singing catchy little tunes on Sunday morning, okay? In Psalm 40, David wrote, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. So David loved God's word. He treasured it in his heart, and he strived to obey it. I mean, he realized that, yeah, these things we do at church are, are important, but what's really important is my obedience, you know. He realized that how we live our lives, that's how we really worship, okay? So he held that God leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? Well, for his name's sake, Psalm 23. So obedience is the highest form of worship. It's, it's, a, it's a way to express worship. So that means that sin is the antithesis of worship because it is a refusal to glorify God. Uh, let me use a quote from John Piper to kind of unpack that a little bit. He says that sinning is a falling short of the glory of God, okay? But it's not like you shot an arrow at God's glory and the arrow fell short, but that you could have had it as a treasure, but you don't. You've chosen something else instead. 
And that's the deepest problem with sin because it is a suicidal exchange of infinite value and beauty for some fleeting inferior substitute. The way that I explain this to my college students is I invite them to you know, imagine that they're, uh, uh, they're playing in a championship basketball game, okay? And uh, they're down by one point, just a couple seconds to go. And uh, you get the ball, and there's a clear lane to the basket, uh, you know, no one around. Uh, you could just do an easy layup, win the game, win the championship. Two seconds to go. So you take a few steps, and then you notice in the, the crowd a vendor carrying some, you know, selling some cotton candy. So you drop the ball, and you walk over, and you, take, you, know, you buy some cotton candy. Clock winds down, you lose the game. Okay, that's how, you know, you could have had the championship, but you settled for cotton candy. And that's kind of what we do with sin. You know, you could, you settle for this, but we could have had this. And wouldn't God, you could have had God's glory, but you settle for something else. Paul speaks of those who foolishly exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. That's what we're talking about here, or cotton candy. <laughs> for images resembling mortal man and beard, birds and animals. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1. So every time we disobey, we replace God and his glory with some inferior substitute which amounts to idolatry. When I first became a Christian, I thought that all of the talk about idolatry in the Bible seemed a little antiquated. I mean, I couldn't imagine any of my neighbors bowing down like to a golden calf or something uh, or some other fancy statue. But I now realize that idolatry runs rampant in our world. Even worse, though, friends, is the idolatry lurking in my own heart. And that's what God wants me to be vigilant about. Pastor Timothy Keller, in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, he teaches that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Then he gives some examples here. An idol is such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. For example, it can be family and children, career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving faith and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. You know, all these things are good in and of themselves until they become idols. Because an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I know I will have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best word to use is worship. So how about you? Any idols in your life you need to smash? 
any besetting sins threatening to shipwreck your life, any bad habits sabotaging your relationships. Worship reinforces the fact that God is infinitely better than anything this world offers. God alone is our lasting satisfaction, our deepest joy, and our greatest pleasure. In fact, friends, every time we worship, we're saying, in essence, God, you are my God. You know, it's not my job. It's not my bank account, you know. It's not alcohol. It's not porn. God, you are my God. Every time we praise, every time we lift our hearts in worship, that's what we're saying. God, you are my God. None of these other things are. Uh, last thing we need to know is that God invites us to worship him, even amidst adversity. You know, some of David's psalms have uh, titles indicating that the purpose or the occasion for which they were written, um, and many, when, you know, if you look close at those inscriptions, they reveal that uh, a lot of David's psalms arose from great turmoil. He faced one difficulty after another. He was on the brink of despair, number of occasions. In other words, David's life experience was much like yours and mine's friends. He was familiar with suffering, and yet he was able to worship amidst adversity. And that, that just blows me away. Years ago, a friend of mine named Leo and his wife, they lost their 24-year-old daughter, Megan, in a tragic automobile accident. She was the victim of a drunk driver. And uh, five days after the, the tragic accident, there was a funeral at the church and it was packed. And it started with a, a video tribute to Megan's life and slide after slide showed uh, this beautiful brown-eyed, brown-haired girl with an infectious smile. Uh, she obviously loved the Lord and they uh, read entries from her journal. It was obvious that she was committed to the Lord. Then after the video, my friend Leo gets up and he reads Psalm 34. And then with guitar in hand, uh, he starts strumming and starts, you know, about to lead us in worship. But before he, he sings, he says, you know, as a worshiper and a worship pastor, the reason I wanted to start this service is because I refuse to stand before you on Sunday morning and worship when things are good and not be willing to worship when things are not good. My friend Leo comes from a long line of worshipers dating all the way back to King David who somehow found a way to worship God even when life got hard without glossing over their pain because I, I know that's, what not, that's not what Leo and his wife were doing. They certainly didn't they gloss over their pain at all. But they knew that no matter what happens, God is still sovereign, God is still good, and he is still worthy of our highest praise. Now, some of you this morning may be going through a very difficult time, and uh, maybe you're experiencing deep sadness or loss, or you've suffered uh, some overwhelming uh, trials that you're going through. And uh, friends, I, I pray that the Lord meets you in your place of greatest need, because that's what he tends to do, reveals himself to you in a mighty way, because that's what he tends to do. And um, that you respond, that you walk into the invitation to worship accordingly, even in the midst of your adversity. So far, we've been discussing how to grow as a private worshiper. And um, 
Let's turn our attention just in the last few minutes here a little bit to corporate worship. How can I do a better job of worshiping on Sunday morning? Um, some time ago, there was a woman at our church who uh, stopped me, and uh, she had exciting news to share. Uh, the previous evening, she had attempted a, a hymn sing at a neighborhood church, and she couldn't wait to tell me about it. She brought me a copy of the program. It contained about, looked like about two hours of music. And she said, you know, we sang all my old favorites, the great hymns of the faith. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Now, I love hymns, very fond of hymns. But her comment made me wonder, what in, in heaven is, you know, what's worship going to be like in heaven? And uh, certainly worship is going to be more than just an eternal hymn sing and more than just choir and pipe organ or more than just drums and guitar all the time. It really aroused my curiosity. What is worship like in heaven? And what can we learn from heavenly worship that can help us become better worshipers now? Well, that drove me straight to the book of Revelation, especially you know, chapters 4 and 5. And when you look at those four, uh, two chapters, friends, there's four chief characteristics that jump out of, off the pages at you. Uh, worship in heaven is ascriptive, it's unapologetically passionate, it's intergenerational, and it's multi-ethnic. And each facet, each of those four facets demands that we respond accordingly. It shapes how we approach corporate worship. So if you want to experience worship on earth as it is in heaven, maybe there's some things we need to do when we go to church. First of all, uh, we need to focus on God's attributes during worship. Uh, worship in heaven is pure ascription, meaning that it focuses solely on God. There are no personal pronouns recorded in heaven's worship. In fact, it was very conspicuous. It's like there's no personal pronouns. There's no me, my, or I. Instead, the names and the attributes of God are front and center. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, Revelation 4, 8. And then listen to all of the attributes of God that are just packed into Revelation 7, 12. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So everyone in heaven is just so enamored with God that they don't waste a single moment thinking only about themselves. So a script of worship reminds us that we are not the center of the universe. God is. God is set apart, distinct from us. He is the creator. We are the created. He's infinite. We are finite. He's holy and righteous. We are broken and sin-prone. So... A script of worship uh, resizes us. It puts us in proper relationship to God. A script of worship acknowledges that God is not like us. He's in a class by himself, and it is the highest and the greatest and the loftiest class of all. He is totally and absolutely other with a capital O. 
Matt Redmond describes this otherness of God as a sense that God is so pure and matchless and unique that no one else and nothing else even comes close. He is altogether glorious, unequaled in splendor, and unrivaled in power. He is beyond the grasp of human reason, far above the reach of even the loftiest scientific mind inexhaustible, immeasurable, and unfathomable, eternal, immortal, and invisible. The highest mountain peaks and the deepest canyon depths are just tiny echoes of his proclaimed greatness. And the blazing stars above, the faintest emblems of the full measure of his glory. So if you want to worship on earth, as they do in heaven, uh, if you want to offer praise that is pure scripture, well, try focusing on God's majestic attributes and marvelous deeds whenever you come to church on Sunday to worship. You know, sometimes we go to church and get focused on the wrong things, you know, like that weird outfit somebody is wearing, you know, or typos in the bulletin, or the style of music that we don't like, you know. And we can get hung up on the smallest of things and miss the essence of worship which is the character of God. One man told me that he just can't possibly worship if his worship leader's shirt is not tucked in. It's like, really? It's like, you know, God is still on, he's still God, and he's still worthy of our worship, even if your worship leader's shirt is not tucked in. You know, sometimes we get distracted during worship. I know I do. Uh, you know, I catch myself, my mouth is moving, but instead of thinking about the Lord, you know, I'm thinking about something else. You know, some problem at work, you know, where we're going to go for lunch after church. You know, but I find that focusing on the attributes of God, this is what I picked up from Revelation 4 and 5, all these attributes. Focusing on the attributes of God during worship keeps my mind from distraction, pulls me back. It increases my awareness of God's presence. It's like, oh, okay, that's who God is. That's who God is, okay? Not long ago, we sang a chorus at church uh, that praised Christ as our Redeemer. And I saw re that word Redeemer flashed up on the screen. And I was, so for some reason, I just was drawn to that attribute. And my spirit camped on that title, and it reminded me that I am redeemed. I have been freed from my old nature to live as a new man in Christ, strengthened my resolve to say no to sin and yes to God. And, you know, those thoughts lasted only a few seconds, but they helped me focus on the Lord. And isn't that what we're supposed to do during worship? So, friends, when you're at church and the song lyrics come up on the, on the screen, you know, be on the lookout for any characteristics or names or descriptions of God, and then, you know, focus on that as, as you sing. You know, that's who God is. That represents who God is. Last point here is to uh, bring God your best worship. You know, worship in heaven is unapologetically passionate. It's also very physical. You know, John saw the heavenly host fall on their faces before God. It says, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Revelation 7, 11. Revelation 11:16. the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. So in heaven, humility is the only possible posture and the glory of God just throws worshipers to their knees. Everyone is actively involved. So throughout scripture, wow, people worship God with great passion. 
In the Old Testament, the original Hebrew word that's used most often for worship, shacha, means to bow down, to fall down, to humbly beseech or do reverence. The Greek word for worship used most often in the New Testament, proskuneo, uh, has a similar meaning to prostrate yourself in homage or do reverence or to adore. Did you pick up on how physical those words are? And when you read them in context, it bears us out. In Exodus 34, 18, we are told that Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Job fell on the ground and worshiped. The people of Israel bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. So in the Bible, people don't sit passively in the pews when it's time to worship. They get passionately and physically involved. Now, when it comes to worship, you know, most of us are much more inhibited than our spiritual forefathers in Scripture, and I get it. I'm that way, too. And uh, maybe we're quiet and reserved by nature. You know, guilty as charged, that's me. Uh, or maybe we grew up in a church that stressed restraint. I have a friend who blames his stoic expression during corporate worship on his constrained Scandinavian heritage. Uh, he sings softly, but with no visible expression or energy. And you know, I don't doubt my friend's sincerity. I know he loves the Lord. Um, but heaven's standard for worship is much more effusive than that. And when we get to heaven, we're going to let it rip, friends. <laughs> and uh, it really, it's simply, if you think about it, it's unnatural to restrain worship. Because really, it's more human nature to exude joy and energy. I mean, we get visibly exercised over a new car, a good meal, or our favorite movie. When discussing sports or religion or politics, good heavens, you know, many of us are very animated. We use our hands to emphasize certain words or phrases. And when we speak about a loved one, you know, our eyes light up, we smile, our feet may even bounce back and forth like, wow, we're about to break into a dance, you know? I don't know anyone who speaks about uh, something or someone that they love uh, in const with constant monotone, no facial expression, hands glued to the side, okay? And yet, that, and yet that's how some of us try to worship. Meanwhile, the saints in heaven are doing face plants in honor of the King of Kings. So if you want to experience worship on earth as it is in heaven, bring God your best worship, whatever that means for you. In Malachi 1.14, the Lord admonishes the nation of Israel because they were not bringing the best sacrifices to the altar. Instead of putting forth their, their best cattle or sheep or goats, they were bringing uh, blemished animals, ones that were sick or old or lame. It doesn't honor God when we bring him less than our best. After all, God has always given us his best. Have you noticed that? He created a world that even in its fallen state, it still captivates us with beauty and grandeur. And then when God rolled out the plan of salvation, he again gave us his best, his only begotten son. And friends, at this moment, Jesus is preparing a place for you in paradise. And it won't be like checking into a fine hotel when you get there. It'll be more like coming home 
to a place custom built just for you by Jesus himself. So God has always gone out of his way for you. So friends, don't hold back when it comes time to praise him. Always bring God your best worship. He certainly deserves it. Now before we, uh, we continue with, with some worship, uh, I made a big deal about the attributes of God. And uh, just to kind of take the next step in this, go a little further, I'm going to um, read a list of God's attributes here. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means. But uh, the question that I would like to ask you is, what attribute of God is most meaningful to you these days? Or what attribute of God are you most drawn to these days? And I'm going to read this list slowly. If you want to bow your head and listen, that's fine. Or if you just want to keep your eyes open, that's fine too. However you best receive this. But I'm going to read this list of God's attributes. And uh, the question is, which one of these are you drawn to? Which one of these are you, or do you need more of in your life or are especially important to you? God is able. All-knowing. Attentive. Awesome. Compassionate. Exalted. Faithful. Forgiving. Gentle. Glorious. Good. Gracious. Great. Holy. Infinite. Just. Kind. Loving. Majestic. Merciful. Near. Patient. Personal. Powerful. Sovereign. Strong. Transcendent. Trustworthy. Wise, worthy. What attribute of God is most meaningful to you these days? You got one? Go ahead and share it with someone around you as our worship team comes forward. <laughs> 